You know what I realized today? That we're the click and clack of romance. We- <laughs> oh, car talk. <laughs> Pour one out for car talk. <laughs> so wait, let me explain. I saw the funniest tweet the other day, which was a guy was like, I'm trying to imagine how I would explain to my kids the idea that like one of the most popular NPR shows was like people would call in <laughs> and describe their car troubles to these two guys who would then diagnose <laughs> the car trouble on like over the it phone. It was a delight. Beyond a delight, right? So I laughed and Wait, then <laughs> Eric's gonna be like, you ladies are just We sound so old again. I don't care. Listen. <laughs> listen, everyone loves car talk. That's a universal. If you haven't had the pleasure, you should listen. It's they funny. should put that up like as a podcast. I'm sure they have. How is it not? Well, and so what was funny is someone's like, that's just what podcasts are. And then I like had to lay down because I was like, That is in fact. Click- we're the click and clack of romance. We just have <laughs> someone calls and they're like, okay, so there was this book and it was, uh, 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 uh. And we're like, oh, it was, you know. <laughs> that was honestly the best part, you guys. Like, there is, the, they would make the callers make the noises. Like, tell us, so your car's making funny noise. Tell us what the noise is. I mean, it was a ridiculous, it was ridiculous. It was a gentler, kinder time. It was. That's the end of Jen and Sarah are old for yeah. today. <laughs> Let's start with like Jen and Sarah are young and new and hip. I don't well, have anything to offer right there. I'll tell you what, Sarah is feeling particularly old today because um, I looked at my calendar this morning and it is officially, as of today, March 13th, two full years since we entered lockdown. Yeah. Um, and those of you who have been with us for two seasons <laughs> since then know that at the beginning we were like, is COVID even a thing? Like, are we going to win or in two weeks we'll be done? <laughs> oh, uh, young. It's a little time capsule of time. naive Sarah and Jen. <laughs> All of us really, honestly. Yeah. Anyway, here we are. Two years in. Here we are. Great job, everyone. You made it through. Well, or at least to hear, <laughs> such exactly. as it is. It's true, though. Um, Sarah, let's welcome everyone to the show. Oh, let's. And then we're going to talk about what today's show is. Welcome, everyone, to Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. I'm Jennifer Prokop. I'm a romance reader and editor. And we are here this week with the author of Nine Rules to Break While Romancing a Rake. Which Say is it ex- again, Jen. That's not the title. Did I get the? I, as I was of saying, of course I was like, you got the sounds, title wrong. That's what that's we like, do. That's wrong. <laughs> Nine rules to break when romancing a rake. I was like, I'm going to show you. I have one with the sexy step back. Oh, that's a good one. I don't even have one with the sexy step back. Oh, you guys. Here's the truth. Wait, pause before we talk about me. Um, <clears throat> listen. You are all out there, and I know that you love step backs, and I'm I'm here to tell you that they are going away. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like anybody decreed this, but I'm telling you that, like, my very real spidey sense on this is that you are not going to be able to get books with clinches on them in quite the same way for much longer. So, if you love a step back, and if you have a beloved book that you love and want the step back of... Now is the time to head to eBay and find (laughs) those books because they are going to slowly become collector's items and they won't exist after this. I don't know what to say to those of you who say, but wait, that's terrible. I support you. (laughs) I mean, I 100% agree and like hashtag save the step back, but also I don't think that's going to happen. So that's so depressing. So yeah, I have found myself now when I'm at the store, like kind of being like, oh, there's a step back in this one. Should I buy it just because? Yeah. Also, here, I'm also going to take this opportunity to say, if you happen to have a copy, a sort of well, a well-maintained copy of my book, No Good Duke Goes Unpunished, with the step back, I will purchase that from you at a premium because I don't have that book um, in step back form. I only have more recent editions that no longer have the step back. So... Thank you for this PSA from Sarah looking for her own book. <laughs> yeah. Well, it happens. And apparently nine rules. But I will. I'll buy it from you at a premium. Oh, my goodness. Okay. This actually is a good transition, though, because why we are here today, Sarah, is to talk about nine rules, which is being re-released 
rejacketed. It is. Well, people are going to look down and see it, everybody. Yeah. You're going to see this beautiful new cover. It's so pretty. It is really pretty. And in honor of this occasion, as you know, when Sarah has a new book out, we usually have a like, let's talk about this book because we love it. And so in honor of this auspicious occasion today, I have branded this week's episode as nine questions for nine rules. Oh, my goodness. Look I have that. nine. It's That's very it. solid. Very tight. Nine questions. Some of them are kind of longer, like think pieces. Some of them are real short. We just want to know. I should say also March – End of March, March yeah. twenty, right around Third, when this think, when right? this release comes out. the the book com- This book comes out the twenty second, but right around here is uh, the official twelfth birthday of this book. It was released in March of twenty ten. So I don't think I ever realized what a romance classic. What close proximity Ugh. that would have been to Fifty Shades. Oh. Yeah, it's interesting because I definitely can remember reading Fifty Shades before I wrote Eleven Scandals, which yeah. was the third book in this particular series. Mm-hmm. But when I started writing this, it was Twilight wall to wall. I yeah. mean, that was the only thing anybody was talking about was Twilight. Well, I mean, Fifty Shades is same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. Same energy. Okay, so I have nine questions for you about nine rules to break when romancing or a rake. Oh, that's probably going to turn into like 29 questions, but they're starting out with a solid nine. You like this book. I love this book. <laughs> and I reread it and it was a pleasure. Oh. Okay. So, Sarah, question number one is. Oh, boy. No. Why nine <laughs> rules? Why not five or ten or seven or some other number? How did that happen? Uh. Okay. So, <laughs> so the title came after the book, which is, you know, often the case. Uh, in especially in early days of romance writing. Now my titles come before the book, but that's not normal. Um, and uh, so the nine rules are literally the nine things. But there is a story behind this, which is that, of course, I didn't. I think the original title for this book was like, like something, some play on the term never been kissed, right? Okay, sure. Um, which, you know, if you know the plot of this book, we worked fine. But my, I had an agent at the time, Alyssa Henkin. She's fabulous. And uh, she was a YA agent um, because I had thought, oh, I'm, I had written a YA novel. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm a YA writer. I'm going to go get myself a YA agent. And then I wrote a, a adult romance because that was what I really wanted to write anyway. And she had never sold a romance novel like to a publishing house. And so she, you know, took herself to, you know, the, the person in her agency who knew about romance who basically was like, well, you know, you need to, like, gave her a bunch of rules about romance novels, one mm-hmm. of which was, you can write anything you want, but no anal. So that's how long ago we're talking about. I mean, a million years. I guess headphones in. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Hope you're not driving the kids to school. <laughs> so then, um, and anyway, so she said to me, like, well, the, because no one knows me in, in romance publishing, the subject line really needs to be kind of, like, quirky and different. And mm-hmm. maybe have a rhyme in it. Like, it just needs to be something that people will open the email if they see. And so we came up with nine rules to break when romancing a rake, which I truly thought, like, would have would get the laugh, the click, and then be tossed into the garbage. And then uh, about, I don't know, two or three months later, I emailed my editor. And I was like, so just out of curiosity, like, what's the title of this book? And she was like, and Nine she rules. replied in like v- her very dry fashion, like, I don't understand. It's nine rules to break when romancing rake. And I was like, no, surely it is not. <laughs> um, it was never intended to be, but there it is. See? So that's the nine rules. Well, and the reason I was asking is as I was looking at them, you have it's like one of them, it's like smoke a cheroot and drink whiskey combined. Oh, is and it? And so I was like, is that really, is was it, it 10 and they made it Look 9? Look at me. Look at it's us. Okay. Jen. I'm a really. close reader, Sarah. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other problem is that when you start a when you start some a series with the number nine. Sure. You're now stuck with 10, 11, 10 and 10 11. 10 and 11. And 11 scandals was a different situation where I actually did like – Think it through. Think yeah. through what the 11 things would be because, you know. So my favorite thing on this list is Callie says, I, I want to be considered beautiful just once. Mm. And it's really clear in the book that she's like crossing things off the list. But at some point she 
she never really crosses that off the list. Right. I think if I'm right, right? Like she, because she's now beautiful to Ralston all the time. Oh, look at that. <laughs> what a good writer. Well done. <laughs> um. Okay, perfect. That was question number one. Okay, question number two is, what do you think you learned about romance from writing a book versus reading one? Like, can you remember back to that moment? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was very lucky in that Nine Rules. So the story of Nine Rules is that, you know, so this is my first romance novel, my first historical um, adult romance novel. And the manuscript was sent to somebody else at HarperCollins. So there are a lot of things. I think part of what I learned about publishing during this process is you can write a very good book, you can do all the things correctly, and it still just falls to luck. Like sure. Where the book lands. It was sent to a different editor at my publisher, and that editor read it and didn't care for it, is my understanding. Or I don't know if didn't care for it, but whatever. No hard feelings. Right. Like, I don't, this is not me being like, ha ha. No, totally. Right? Like, like, sometimes. It just wasn't her thing. And it just so happens that, like, there had been an editorial meeting, like, a week before where some, where my particular editor had said, like, she was looking for a debut historical, just one that she could really sink her teeth into and and build. And so instead of doing what most editors, 99% of editors do with a manuscript that they don't care for and just saying, like, thanks, but this one isn't for me, pass, she picked it up and walked it down the hall and set it on the desk of the woman who bought my book, edited it really, I mean, so much, taught me so much, and then, like, launched my career in a way that, I mean, had I, who knows, who knows where I would be, where we would be, where everybody would be, if it had all gone the way that it should have gone. You know, it's just, sometimes it is just luck. So that's why I always say, like, in publishing, you just have to be prepared to, like, walk through the door when it opens because sometimes, like, right. it's just – it's you're just – everything – you can't predict how it's going to go. That said, um, my editor, Carrie Farron at Avon, is one of the greats. Um, and I don't say that just because she's mine. I say it because, you know, she's edited many, many of the yeah. authors and books that we have talked about on the podcast that mm-hmm. as, like, you know, cornerstone texts of the genre. And one of the things that she taught me right away – um, with the manuscript for Nine Rules was about characterization, right? Like Mo- Carrie's biggest, biggest, I think as an editor, the thing she con- she is most concerned with is motivation. And so like when a character like Callie, who has been, you know, who's 27 and a spinster wallflower and wears On the shelf, cap, right. <laughs> like when a character like Callie decides to take herself to a rake's house to like get kissed in the middle of the night, like, I need, I think that book, I think the manuscript originally opened like almost right on top of that scene. And Carrie, my editor, was like, You're not ready for this. Like, we need to see really the life that she is throwing away, like throwing into the fire. Right. Literally. And she, um, and that was so powerful for me and so important to me. It taught me a lot of lessons about beginnings. It taught me a lot of lessons about how you write a, mo- a character who's, like, deeply motivated, um, how you mine characters for motivation. And I think this is a thing that, like, I still, when I when I am finished with a draft, my character's motivations are never clear, you know, and I always have to go back to the beginning and, like, really hammer home why did – why do yeah. these characters make the choices they make? And um, I think it's something that a lot of young writers struggle with. Right. Because um, you don't, until you have somebody to really like read your manuscript and say, I'm concerned that on chapter one, I don't understand why we're moving. Like, how did the bullet fire from the gun? Right. And uh, that's a big one. And that is honestly, I think, um, you know, when we did season one of the podcast and we talked about Cressley's, about a hunger like no other being a book that straddles two times in romance like two romance eras right i think nine rules does that too in a lot of ways because it takes it's a long lead up like you see the two of them separate you do a lot longer than i now if i were writing this book now it would be a very different book well it was interesting for me because 
The, I mean, you see them in the prologue, but. Right. But this is like the first time I've read the book since I've started editing. Mm. And I was like, oh. And I do think it's necessary, but like they really don't. It really, there's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I have said, I'm on the record for thinking like, yeah, I just, I think the whole book could be tighter. I know a lot of you out there love it and like think it's perfect. <laughs> and that's really lovely of you. And I, and I really am grateful, but I really feel like for me now, knowing right. what I do now, like the character, that sort of beginning is a real 2010 kind of beginning. Yes. That right. in 2020 probably wouldn't work as well for readers. Um, yeah. And I think that it there is something like very McNaughty, not that I'm comparing myself to McNaught, but like it has that kind of. McNaught vibe of like here are two characters here are two people are existing on their own separate tracks yes. and then right something's gonna crash them right. into each other no I, f- I thought the same thing and it was it was it is really interesting in that way I think to just think about and we talk about this all the time yeah. like the beats of romance are constantly changing and sometimes when you're in the middle of it you're like I don't like this change <laughs> yeah but that doesn't mean I mean I am famous for being like I don't like this change but it that's how it works well this book often you know, there's been on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, there was like a big kerfuffle about length, mm-hmm. like how long the book should be. And, you know, this book is like 117,000 words, which, which is long. Me, it's extremely long. I mean, my to give you a frame of reference, everyone, like a, a normal, like single title standalone romance novel is usually between like 80 and like 75 and 90,000 words. My books always top 100, but like, just barely. I think Heartbreaker, which is the book that's coming out in the summer, is like 103, 104,000 words. But this is like a full other, this is like plus a novella. And that novella might be that like early, is probably that early, that early part, bit. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. We've talked about publishing a lot, so maybe this is actually a good transition. I'm changing the order oh. as we speak. Sounds like you're writing a book. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> So tell us about the process of like rejacketing, right? Of putting oh, a new yeah. cover on a book. And and I think that indie authors are often like changing covers, but in tra- traditional publishing that is not quite at the ugh, No, the pace, and certainly right? not in romance. Right. Um, you know, a rejacket in romance is is rare unless suddenly you you know, you have say Bridgerton, right? Sure. sure. Um although there are that in the 80s and 90s, like all those big books got, you know, yes. as authors got bigger and bigger and bigger, the pictures got taken off the front and then the names got larger and then there was like a glove or a quill or something right. on the front. But the names got larger. I mean, this is very the common. The names got larger. Especially in publishing when it's books by men, honestly, right? It's right. Right, the right. child. <laughs> and nobody cares. Like nobody, nobody cares. cares what's inside. It's just the new lead child book, right? But this is not that. Like, my name didn't get bigger on this cover. It's just right. a different kind of cover. So, I mean, I think it's – I think rejacketing is really interesting. I think um, – I mean, I'm going to be really honest in this because I can be, I think. I think partially it's because romance is moving toward trade. So mm-hmm. we were really curious about, like, well, what if we tried a historical romance in trade in this way? Uh, Nine Rules went out of print during the pandemic, not for any reason other than, like, there was a paper shortage and sure. it's such far lo- far back backlist that, like, it it just had to, it had to sit at the back of the line long enough. So it felt like, okay, well, there were enough people. It had been out of print for, I don't know, eight months or something accidentally. Right. And um, it gave us an opportunity to say, like, all right, well, let's try something new. But also it gave us an opportunity to say, this is a book that is, you know, really beloved, There are a lot, a lot, a lot of Callie and Ralston readers out there who really love this book. There are a lot of historical readers who know this book, love this book. It's 12 years old. Like it's, um, but I think it still has, it's still modern, modern enough in its sensibilities. Um, It's sexy. People generally think Ralston is like a modern hero. And, uh, And so part of it was also like, well, how do we convince younger largely contemporary, largely readers to try a book that they might ordinarily think is something like homework, right? This is this like historical challenge. And I don't know, Jen, I mean, I, it's a, it's a thing I think about every day, as you know, but like my fear is like, I think we are like historical needs to, 
their historicals are so fresh and so vibrant and so much so close to fantasy in so many ways now and the mm-hmm. the worlds are getting more diverse and the the plot lines are get are just as bonkers as they've always been and so i we're i have always felt like how do we how do we keep bringing newer younger readers and i mean that in both senses like young readers to the genre age-wise and like people who might not have picked up romance before they read Beach Read, right? Right. Like, where do they go from here? And how do you tell them the water is fine and historical? So it, the rejacketing is about packaging, right? Like, right. Romance is cereal. <laughs> and so how do you change the box? Yeah. you. I, I talk a lot about is Jenny Cruzy on, there's a, I can't remember the name of the documentary about romance where she's being interviewed and she's like, it's a can of soup. Yeah. Right? Like, it's yeah. my job to sell this thing. Yeah. But also, like, there's a whole new world of romance readers out there and they've not met Callie and Ralston. Right. Right. Sure. So. Sure. For a lot of reasons, right? So putting it back out there and having it be on shelves is – and looking like this, right? Part of it is, like, bookstores being more willing to carry trade. Sure. There's less and less space for mass market on bookshelves. You know, it's all the things we've talked about a thousand times in the podcast. But, like, you know, so it's a guinea pig. I don't know. Will it work? I hope so. I hope so, too. That's interesting. So thank you. Let me follow up on that, though, because I actually think it's, like, an art direction question, too. I mean, so, Mm. like, I do think just talk a little bit about, like – yeah. You know, you get to talk to the art department and say, like, here's what I think, like, nine rules is yeah. really big. Like, talk about the cover itself. <laughs> okay, the maybe. title I did talk to them about, listen, this, full disclosure, this book uh, was rejacketed in the dead of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. There were no photo shoots on the Mm-mm. table. No. So it's this is a stock photo. If you search stock sites, you are going to find this. I don't know. Maybe maybe you won't. Maybe they bought, like, full rights to this photo. But, like, right. it's – I mean, this I I have seen this photo myself on stock sites before. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's not a um, so it, it was constrained. The rejacket was really constrained by the pandemic in a in a lot of ways. Um, and then on top of it, you know, there was a sense of well, how do we make it feel more modern, right? Like sure. nine rules to break when romancing a rake is a pretty weird, old fashioned historical. Yes really historical forward title. Yes. And so we were like, all right, how do we make it sound like it's not school, right? Right. So we we bumped up nine rules. If you look at the cover, it's probably right there on your screen as we're talking. Um, you'll see nine rules is really big. Yeah, Everything's the- in like a sans serif font. Right. And the blue and orange is really vibrant. Everything's right? bright. She's wearing like Basically a prom dress. Like, it's supposed to read, like, lush dress porn. Yes. Not, you know, historically accurate uh, research. <laughs> Although you could definitely do research with this book. Well, and that's the thing that is funny rereading Sex it, too. research. <laughs> <laughs> there are some books that when the first book of a Regency series comes out, it really feels like you could teach someone the rules of, like, Regency romance with this book. Mm. Right, the ballrooms and the dowagers and the dowries mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And there's like quite there is like quite a bit of that in here. And sure, because really I was fun. a historical reader sure. who like was Loved obsessed it. with all these rules and all these things. And truly, I don't think I did it this way, but had I sat down and made a list of all the things I just loved in romance, right? This, this is, book would appear. This is it. I mean, we've yeah. talked about this before, like that debuts often feel this way. Like somebody has just been like in love with a genre forever and then finally they just they do it pour their heart onto the page and all like it's just a love letter and i really do think nine rules is a love letter to historicals the historicals that built built me as a reader and a writer this week's episode is sponsored by adriana herrera author of the newly released the duke makes me feel which was originally released as part of the Duke I'd Like to F anthology last year, which (laughs) we all read voraciously. Of course. So The Duke Makes Me Feel is Adriana's historical starring a woman named Marina Bain Torres. She works at her own apothecary, which I love. I bet she has all sorts of tinctures and tonics for sale. In fact, she has tinctures and tonics 
in the same vein as tinctures and tonics as we have discussed before on the podcast, which I think is very cool. Of course. So many of her customers are ill-mannered aristocrats. Can you believe it? One of them, though, based on the premise here, is a duke, the Duke of Linley. Who basically, like, bursts in and insists that she road trip with him. As one does. Listen, I'm not saying I would not appreciate if a duke burst into my house and insisted that I road trip with him. Obviously. So, you know, if you love road trip, romances, forced proximity, things happening in carriages. Tinctures and tonics, (laughs) stern dukes, and a lot of sex. It's Adriana. Of course you're going to get all those things. <laughs> you should check out The Duke Makes Me Feel. It's available in ebook. You can also find Adriana on Instagram at Ladriana Herrera. Or you can go to her website, adrianaherreraromance.com. As always, you can find more information about the sponsors and the books that they've written in show notes. And with Adriana, one of our few five-time episode guests. You can also listen to many, many wonderful hours with her here at Theta Mates. Thanks to Adriana for sponsoring the show. This is actually a great transition to my next question, which is, have you ever reread any of your own books? No. Um, I, I, well, uh, I will say this. I scanned Nine Rules because it was 12 years ago. Yeah. And we... Uh, when you know better, you do better. And I wanted to make sure that if I had yeah. written anything or, or even just like a throwaway line, like I remember I um, did a search and replace, like I did a find, I had them send me the document, the PDF, and I did a find for the word whore, for example, yeah. which in 2010, it's reasonable to assume I might have used that, right. um, especially since I knew there were sex workers on page in Nine Rules. Fun fact, I did not. It is not in there. So well right. done, past Sarah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very careful. I wanted to make sure that if I had used wor- any words that were, you know, really problematic or that would, you know, be sure. harmful, that I had a chance to change them. And I know that on, on the podcast, we've talked about other authors doing this. And I've always, like, been able to articulate both sides of this Concern, sure. but like when you are a real person who is trying really hard to do well, right, and do better every day, right, and you have a chance to look at your book and say, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna rethink this." Uh, you do. I think there were a couple of instances where I did like change a word or two, and I know you're gonna say which words, and now I, I honestly can't remember. I will say that I was like pleasantly surprised by my right awareness twelve years ago. Good. Um, but I did not fully reread the book. And that is because I am smart enough to know better. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling that was I had a feeling that was the answer, but I I've never be I've, but no, yeah. I've never reread any of my books. Mm, because I've also never read a manuscript, a draft of a manuscript where I felt like, oh, this is perfect. Like there's always a change. Toni Morrison is famous for saying that. Like basically you can never no. All you can do is see how you can make it better. Right. Um, also, I will say to those of you who are concerned, I did leave the sweet rain line in, <laughs> I was, even though I was tempted to take it out. <laughs> okay. It's okay, Cal. <laughs> uh, perfect. Okay. Um, this is actually just a funny quick one. So when I was – if you've ever listened to the audiobook, right, they are Nicholas and Gabriel, and on page it looks like St. John – but then it's Sinjin. Sinjin. Why, Sarah? Is and this is not you. <laughs> this is the English. This is the British, for, like, I assume. But the explanation explain. of Middle English. <laughs> yes, please. I would like you to do it. I know you love this shit, so go ahead and tell us. No, it is Sinjin. Uh, it's the same as Saint Clair. What what Americans would call Saint Clair is Sinclair. Huh. Um. It's just, it's a shortening of the saint. Um, but can I tell my funny story about, I don't know if you know this story. I don't know that I do. Do you know my story about Lord Nicholas Sinjin? No. Okay, so I think, I'm sure I can tell this story. Whatever, nobody's going to, he's not going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, uh, so Nick becomes, Nick is the hero of the second book in the series, 10 Ways to Be Adored When Landing a Lord. He's Lord Nicholas Sinjin. Like the hottest man in London. London's, sure. I forget what he's called, but he's basically like London's sure. most eligible bachelor. And, and about a year after I wrote 
after 10 ways came out, I got an email from my editor that was forward from the legal department at HarperCollins, who had received a cease and desist <laughs> from a real life. Oh my God. Lord no. Nicholas Sinjin. Listen. Who lives in redacted. Um, <laughs> who would object to that? He was like, yes. I, well, so this thing, so I, so I was like, this is a joke. Like, obviously, this is a joke. Like, and it was a true, honest to God, cease and desist letter that basically said, like, this book, this depiction of this name um, is damaging to my client's reputation. So HarperCollins legal department, because lawyers don't have really generally like a huge sense of humor when they get cease and desists, <laughs> I discovered pretty quickly when I laughed uproariously um, and then was like, I've made it. <laughs> Um, Harper asked me to make a list of all the ways that my Lord Nicholas Sinjin was not the same yes. as this one. Which Including, you would think, like born in 1801 yeah, or whatever. You would think that would be like the only one that was necessary in a novel period. One of them is fictional and, you know, from the 19th century. No, it had to be like literally like. This one lives in a different country than mine. Like, all these, like, things. And then at the end, because I could not resist, I was like, also, my Lord Nicholas Ingen is, like, London's greatest lover. So I think maybe he, if that's the concern, then I'm guessing they're not the same in that front, on that front either. And her, the legal department wrote back, we've taken all these except for the last point. <laughs> Amazing. So that was great. And I never heard another word from... The legal Lord Nicholas. counsel for Lord Nicholas, um, which is too bad because I really think that if that were me, I would just buy a case of the books and pass them out to my friends. Yeah, I'd be like, this is based on my life. <laughs> Hello. That's a great story. Okay, so I have some questions mm -hmm. now just about, like, the book itself. So a lot of people have read it. Maybe some of you haven't, but I'm trying to, like, these are kind of spoiler-free, but I think. Okay. Callie and Ralston are in some ways – basically like the wallflower rake archetype, but they aren't cardboard cutouts on page at all. So how as an author do you take a trope or like these archetypes really that are so like laid in stone and like kind of turn them into real people? Explain your magic to us. <laughs> I think that that's partially due to, like I said, the really careful teaching and and editing of Carrie Farron. Um, she, like, a, a, you know, there is a real sense when you first set pen to paper in the romance world to write the archetypes and the tropes as you love them. Mm -hmm. um, and that often gets us to a place where we're writing the bones of the project and not the actual, like, flesh and blood of the project. Not to be, like, too intense on that metaphor, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And so I think, like, there is that great adage that the more specific a character is, the more universal that character reads. And I think that's what happens here with Callie and Ralston is they have they have their like little quirks and their like specific mm -hmm. personality traits and their specific, you know, Ralston plays piano and like right. uh, Callie, you know, does whatever Callie does. <laughs> <laughs> Callie does a lot of things. Callie you know, is a busy bee. And I also think that part of what humanizes both of them and makes them such, like, nuanced and popular characters is that, again, it goes back to, like, I layered in so many traits and quirks and tropes and moments that I loved mm -hmm. from romance writ large. Yeah. So it just starts to feel like because there are so many layers there that are all just because I was such a super fan. Right. It ends up feeling like, oh, I've created these like big, round, beautiful characters. Um, I think it's in many ways accidental in this book. Like I, I certainly <laughs> did. I, I did not know what I was doing when I wrote this right. book. Um, but I think it is just a really... I think this book is so much a love letter to the genre, which is in part why I think uh, readers love it so much because it's their love letter too. In many, right. I mean, right. reading know, it feels like, when like I yeah, yeah. When I introduce myself, I introduce myself as a romance reader first, and that's true. Like I can always imagine never writing again, but like I can't imagine never reading another romance novel again. And so you know, I think 
Yeah, it's a love letter. And that's why the characters feel so human because they are about 5,000 other characters inspired. Well, and that's it. It's like I was sort of like, you know, the lace caps remind me of Sarah Fielding and the (laughs) like the evil mother reminds me of Dane's mother. And, you know, like so much of it, the waltzing and all that, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's like devil sinster is in there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But let me take you to the modiste and buy you the clothes. And it's like all there. It's all there. It's like a full. Yeah. Reading it made me want to read those other books. Like that's how it does feel. Like it it belongs in that pantheon of like. These are like these primordial romance, Regency romance texts. Yeah. One of the things, though, that is really different, this is one of my questions, is um, that Ralston is a Marquis. And it feels like so old school to not have him be a duke. I know. Like, right? Like the tyranny of it must be a duke clearly had not happened yet. I don't know that that's true. And I'm curious. Like, was that true? Or were they like, why is he a Marquis? I mean, like, what – do you remember? Or when did it become? God, why had was he a Marquis? Honestly, I don't know. I, I feel Wait, like. Before you go, where are Marquises even in the like scale? I never even it know. It goes Duke. They're two. They're number two. So okay. Duke, Marquis, Earl, Viscount, okay. Baron. Got it. Okay. And I have written Dukes, Marquises, and Earls. Mm, I don't think I've written a Viscount. Because shameful because <laughs> you could do gold silver and bronze but who cares about number four <laughs> well talk to anthony bridgerton friend fine oh i oh i guess so this week <laughs> this right. week the world is going to learn a lot about viscounts <laughs> so um i don't actually know somebody's going to surely remind me that i'm wrong but yeah. I, I i don't actually know i've always liked i've always liked the title sure i've probably written i've written more than one marquis and it's partially because i just like i I think it's a fun word. I it really like word. Marchioness, like mm-hmm. really a lot. I think it's very fun to write. And I like the word Marquisate. Like I like all <laughs> the words that are a part of it. So that's probably what it was. Um, and then this is not true, but th- this particular series does end with a Duke. As yes. Most of my, no, I guess not all of them, but some of my series ends with end with Dukes. Right. And that's a, that's vestige of like old historicals where there's a big duke at the end yeah the (laughs) big duke energy yeah exactly as they say also i didn't know the rule well sure right so like i wrote a marquis and like had i now right you know 12 years in hey dummy write a duke (laughs) but this book did fine (laughs) clearly that's why it really did fine for my career so (laughs) um okay i have two more questions in my official questions Okay. This next one, though, I think is going to take some time to unpack. I've oh, no. left it for long. Oh, it no. Has, it has one part, and then I like, know exactly I'm translate what this is, is, I think. <laughs> question, number, question number eight. Are you fully prepared to stave off a new rush of Benedict inquiries? Uh. And <laughs> in other words, let me translate that. Why don't some secondary characters become main characters? Oh, I'm so sorry. You need to have that motherfucker get married in the background and dance across the room at a ball and just Here's, put well now an he's end like seventy five years old <laughs> in the McLeanverse. He's not. I don't know how old. Wait, well, this is what? What book? What this what is? Year 18, is this eighteen twenty one? Eighteen twenty three. And Ralston's what thirty? Ralston's thirty. So is Benedict's like twenty thirty two? Right? Or he's a little older than Callie. All right. So he's like in his fifties. All right. Yeah. All right. Done. <laughs> I got to write a book with a ball in it, though. <laughs> you fool. Yeah. Maybe somebody just pisses him off. I don't know. Okay. No, listen. Here's the truth. Benedict is delightful. He's, He's delightful. Fine. And there. And I, ha- again, had I known then what I know now, he would not have redacted Ralston in the study. <laughs> <laughs> because the second that happened, that was it. We launched a thousand ships of Please Write Benedict's book. Yeah. And also, he's a little bit, uh, what's his name? Warren Anderson? Is that right? No. I don't know. Who the fuck's Warren Anderson? From the Joanna Lindsay pirate books. Oh, okay. Like the crusty, yeah, he's yeah. not really crusty, but like it's the prote- overprotective brother, right? Right. Like we are all conditioned. We see an overprotective brother and we're like, yeah, get it. Yeah. <laughs> He's too happy. You guys, what would Benedict's book would be about five pages long. He's going to meet somebody nice and get married and they're going to have a past little kids and great. I mean, maybe he's super dirty. 
He could be super dirty. I mean, I don't know. He seems like a very decent dude, is my point. And so, I mean, I guess his dad is dead. That's probably traumatic in some way. Listen, you can't be an Earl if your dad's not dead. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Whoops. Um, no, listen. But here's the truth, you guys. This Benedict is too, he is not he is someone's hero. He is yeah. not a McLean hero. Like yeah. if you read the full gamut of Sarah McLean heroes, there's just not a well-adjusted one in the in the bunch. <laughs> I love a broken hero. I love a hero who's like deeply not adjusted. Yeah. And Benedict is cool and he like loves his family and like he's just a decent ha- and I promise you he is so happy. He is married and has many children and is very happy being the earl and at some point his eldest son is going to become the earl and there are is a long line of earls of whatever the sure Allendale Alan, Earls of Allendale, Allendale. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, probably even today. And if I wrote one of them, I'd get a cease and desist letter. <laughs> sure. Um, but also, yeah. But, um, you know, I think a lot about whenever I get a, a request about Benedict, I think about that. That happens often. The request oh, about Benedict, right? Every time I post about any book. Yeah. On Instagram. Like, just go to literally any post on Instagram that is about literally any one of my books. <laughs> and, there, like, dollars to donuts, as my mom would say, there is a, there is a you know, comment, when are we getting Benedict's book? Yes. It always, it especially happens when I announce new books. Like, yeah. Right. Who's this jerk? Where's Benedict? Where's Benedict? Well, he's old now. <laughs> as someone who is also old now. Well, I mean, being in your 50s is not old. But the uh, do you remember that anthology from Avon that came out in like the late 90s or early aughts? And it was like, where's my hero? Yes. And it was a letter from a reader saying like, where are all the nice boys? Yeah. And it's like Lisa Kleypas and others writing yeah. the nice boys. And the truth is, I don't know. I mean, like if somebody really were, if there was an, if there was an anthology like that and Lisa Kleypas wanted to write it with me. Sure. <laughs> You're like, fine. Maybe. That that sounds fun. But also, you ha- look, you have every Bridgerton boy yeah. at your disposal. You have every Tessadere hero at your disposal. And that's that. Enjoy your soft romance babies. I love them, too. But I can't write them. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by friend of the pod, best friend Kelly, who runs Romance Landia Shop. Back in 2019, Kelly started selling Romancelandia-themed items, buttons, and stickers on my website. But now, essentially, she's her own big business. We are still best friends, everybody. No, there's been no schism. <laughs> and <laughs> she moved her business over to the Romancelandia shop at its own URL, romancelandiashop.com. And when you're over there, you can get Fade of Mates buttons and stickers. You can also get the Gen Pack and the Sarah Pack, which include classics like Danger Bang and Scotty and Live Every Week Like It's Rune Week. <laughs> which, you know, perfect. I mean, who doesn't need that as an inspiration for 2022? All of us. Um, one really fun item in the Romance Landia shop is the Romance Landia Sticker Club. Members get a sticker in the mail every month for five bucks, celebrating romance, HEAs, and positive messages relating to inclusivity, joy, and the awesomeness of romance. And you also get like a note from Kelly and sometimes some like extra stuff too. I think it's really lovely that month, that monthly sticker club. It's great. And if you mention Faded Mates when you check out, Kelly will send you an extra special edition sparkly Faded Mates sticker. Now, you can find this and more information in show notes. As always, if you're using a smart podcasting app, just click on the chapter title right now and it'll take you directly to the Romance Landia shop so you can look around. Thanks to Kelly for sponsoring the show. Here, I'm going to give you a free idea, Sarah. I think I've said this before. You're marching forward in time. And if you ever were like, I need to circle back, mm. what you need to do is have Benedict have a happy first marriage and then kill her off. Oh, my God. Have her die a tragic death, and then he gets to be sad and destroyed oh, and broken, no. and then you can fix him from there. Oh, my God. And then it would be like her sister. That's See how hot. that happened? It is hot. And now All it's right. 1826 again. And you New just book, get to, you guys. Benedict and his go. dead wife's sister. <laughs> 
listen, we just wrote it right there. The rest of you just use your imagination. Get on Wattpad. I was like, AO3 is right there for you. But I mean, I do think the thing that's hard is... It's a good idea, Jen. Now you've ruined it. Now I'm about to get a deluge. People are like, that's a good idea. Just run with it. Well, you can always break them, Sarah. That's a good anthology. That's a good novella, too. Yeah, just right. open exactly. on him broken. Yeah, you just exa- You can always break them. Life happens to people. In his cups. Deep in his cups. Oh, he does like that. He does. Dr- smoking. Smoking and drinking yeah, in the library. Smoking is, he's got to quit that right away. <laughs> but you know what? That's the thing. I think romance readers are so conditioned to like look for the next characters in secondary mm-hmm. characters. And it's really hard. Uh, to- Imogen Loveless Stan account. Shh. <laughs> Oh, my God, I can't wait for you to read Heartbreaker. <laughs> okay, I can't wait for me to read Heartbreaker either. We're not going to talk about it because I haven't read it. I can't even. But I do want to talk about one of the things that's really fun to read when you look back at someone's first book is like the... Yeah, what's all in there? It's like twins. <gasps> wait, I have one that Instagram told me about this week. Oh, tell me. That I didn't realize. Which is? Matching Scars. Oh, yeah, you love scars. I love a matching. I had no idea. So I've written (laughs) multiple books now where the hero and heroine over the course of the book acquire matching scars. (laughs) And like, what the hell, Sarah? What does that even mean? Like, that is a thing that I need to talk to my therapist about. Like, what does that mean? (laughs) So, But I had forgotten that in Nine Rules, they end up with matching scars. And That's then so funny. in Day of the Duchess, they have matching scars. That's no, really funny. not Day of the Duchess. In a different one. Yeah. <laughs> with a duke. They have matching scars. I love it. But I mean, like, twins. I mean, I feel like that, like, Madame Bear. we've talked about. Like, like those things that kind of... Yeah, often characters end up having twins because my best friend has twins so mm. often. That's like, anytime there's a baby log or there's, like... You see a character dancing by, and like they ha- they reference that they have twins. It's a it's a nod to my best friend, who I can't you know put in my books all the time. <laughs> I do, but also I love twins because I grew up reading you know sure. all those Jude Devereaux books. Oh my where god, they, twin they, advice, twin the affair. only truth, like, the only yes. true love was the person who could tell them apart. Like I love that. It's too shit. good. That it magic. Is too good. It's that history. Historical is the closest thing we have to fantasy. Yeah. Because, like, when I write that as a writer, like, the only true love, or when Jude Devereaux writes that as a writer, the, o- the only way to know for a fact that it's your true love is that they can tell you apart from your twin. Yes. Readers are like, yes, that's totally believable. <laughs> like, if anybody knows grown-up twins, like, they don't actually look if- – <laughs> if they're standing next to each other, they don't look identical. I teach a lot of twins, and sometimes I can't tell them apart. Well, that's fine. They're young. They're young still. They but do. also, you're not, like, looking at them Also, side they have by masks side. on now. Yeah, they're wearing masks. Yeah. And, like, if yeah, – you could tell. You could tell. If you were dating one of them. <laughs> which <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I do hope so. I mean, and there's no twin mistaking in this book, but at one point, she's dancing with Nicholas and Ralston's like, is my brother on your list? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you love a, you love jealousy. I, I love jealousy, too. Garbage. And listen, this is where I, I could stand to listen less to 2020, because I love a jealous hero. I'm like, I don't want him to, like, break anything. I don't want him to be, like, crazy. I don't, I mean, like, but listen, Run Posey Run is great. Because he can't handle, like, the Those idea of the only feelings I'm allowed to feel, right? And that's why it's a harbinger of, like, <sighs> love feelings. Because I don't know a any other feelings. Of love feelings. I don't know any other feelings, but I'm allowed to feel this thing. Yeah. And then you open that. Oh, it's it up totally and primitive and, like, ridiculous. But We're ridiculous. I like I it. Care. It gives me the – it scratches the itch. Sure does. Oh, Sarah. Well, those were my nine questions about nine rules. You did so well. And thank you for doing an episode on it. So if you have not read nine rules or you haven't read it in audio, we are going to plop the first um, chapter, the prologue. Prologue's a fun chapter. It's a fun chapter. Um, The prologue of nine rules into the end of this episode so that you can listen to it. And uh, you'll get a glimpse of Callie and Ralston together. 
which I think is probably why I wrote this prologue. Yeah, probably so why. that you could see these two dummies together. Um, and you, you should know, um, this is a book that's about a long time unrequited crush for every girl out there who's had a crush on the hot boy who for has him. not noticed her. Mm. Just plucked from my high school fantasies. <laughs> But then he discovers that she's the empress, and that's all you need to know exactly. about Exactly. Exactly. That is this week's Faded Mates. You can find Nine Rules to Break When Romancing a Rake in trade anywhere books are sold. Thanks to our sponsors for sponsoring the podcast this week. As always, you can find information about them in show notes. And thanks to all of you, always, for listening. Have a great week. Prologue. London, England, April 1813. Lady Calpurnia Hartwell blinked back tears as she fled the ballroom of Worthington House, the scene of her most recent and most devastating embarrassment. The welcome night air was crisp with the edge of spring as she rushed down the great marble steps, desperation shortening her footsteps and propelling her forward into the shadows of the vast, darkened gardens. Once hidden from view, she let out a deep sigh and slowed her pace, finally safe. Her mother would be livid if she discovered her eldest daughter outside without a chaperone, but nothing could have kept Callie inside that horrible room. Her first season was an utter failure. It hadn't even been a month since she'd made her debut, the eldest daughter of the Earl and Countess of Allendale, Callie should by all rights have been the belle of the ball. She'd been raised for this life, all graceful dancing and perfect manners and stunning beauty. That was the problem, of course. Callie might be a fine dancer with impeccable manners, but a beauty? She was nothing if not pragmatic, and she knew better than to believe she was one of those. I should have known this would be a disaster she thought as she plopped herself down onto a marble bench just inside the Worthington Hedge maze. She'd been at the ball for three hours and had not yet been asked to dance by a suitor who wasn't entirely unsuitable. After two invitations from renowned fortune hunters, one from a crashing boar and another from a baron who couldn't have been a day under 70, Callie hadn't been able to continue feigning enjoyment. It was obvious that she was worth little more to the ton than the sum total of her dowry and her ancestry, and even that total was not enough to garner a dance with a partner she might actually like. No, the truth was, Callie had spent the better part of the season overlooked by eligible, coveted young bachelors. She sighed. Tonight had been the worst. As if it weren't enough that she was visible only to the boring and the elderly... Tonight she'd felt the stares of the rest of the town. I never should have allowed my mother to pour me into this monstrosity, she muttered to herself, looking down at the gown in question, at its too tight waistline and its too small bodice, unable to contain her breasts, which were a good deal larger than fashion dictated. She was positive that no belle of the ball had ever been crowned in such a vibrant shade of mandarin sunset, or in such a hideous frock for that matter. The dress, her mother had assured her, was the very height of fashion. When Callie had suggested that the gown was not the most flattering to her figure, she had been informed by the Countess that she was incorrect. Callie would look stunning, her mother had promised as the modiste had flitted around her, poking and prodding and squeezing her into the gown. And as she watched her transformation in the dressmaker's mirror, she'd begun to agree with them. She did look stunning in this dress. Stunningly awful. Wrapping her arms tightly around her to ward off the evening chill, she closed her eyes in mortification. I cannot return. I shall just have to live here forever. A deep chuckle sounded from the shadows, and Callie shot up, gasping in surprise. She could barely make out the figure of a man as she pulled herself up to her full height and attempted to slow her pounding heart. Before she could think to escape, she spoke, allowing her distaste for the entire evening to lace her tone. You really shouldn't sneak up on people in the dark, sir. It isn't gentlemanly. He responded quickly, the deep tenor of his voice sweeping over her. My apologies. 
Of course, one might argue that lurking in the darkness isn't exactly ladylike. Ah, there you have it wrong. I am not lurking in the darkness. I am hiding in it. Quite a different thing altogether. She pressed back into the shadows. I shan't give you away, he spoke quietly, reading her mind as he advanced. You might as well show yourself. You're well and truly trapped. Callie felt the prickly hedge behind her even as he loomed above, and knew that he was right. She sighed in irritation. How much worse could this night get? Just then, he stepped into a sliver of moonlight, revealing his identity, and she had her answer. Much worse. Her companion was the Marquess of Ralston, charming, devastatingly handsome, and one of London's most notorious rakes. His wicked reputation was matched only by his wicked smile, which was aimed directly at Callie. Oh no, she whispered, unable to keep the desperation from her voice. She could not let him see her. Not like this, trussed up like a Christmas goose, a mandarin sunset Christmas goose. What could be so bad, Moppet? The lazy endearment warmed her, even as she looked about for an escape route. It was close enough to touch now, towering over her, a good six inches taller than she. For the first time in a long time, she felt small, dainty even. She had to escape. I, I must go. If I were found here, with you, she left the sentence unfinished. He knew what would happen. Who are you? His eyes narrowed in the darkness, taking in the soft angles of her face. Wait, she imagined his eyes flashing with recognition. You're Alan Dale's daughter. I noticed you earlier. She could not contain her sarcastic response. I'm sure you did, my lord. It would be rather difficult to overlook me. She covered her mouth immediately, shocked that she had spoken so boldly. He chuckled. Yes, but it isn't the most flattering of gowns. She couldn't help her own laughter from slipping out. How very diplomatic of you. You may admit it. I look rather too much like an apricot. This time he laughed aloud. An apt comparison. But I wonder, is there ever a point where one looks enough like an apricot? He indicated that she should resume her place on the bench, and after a moment's hesitation she did so. Likely not, she smiled broadly, amazed that she wasn't nearly as humiliated by his agreement as she would have expected. No, indeed she found it rather freeing. My mother, she's desperate for a daughter. She can dress like a porcelain doll. Sadly, I shall never be such a child. How I long for my sister to come out and distract the countess from my person. He joined her on the bench, asking, How old is your sister? Eight, she said mournfully. Ah, oh, not ideal. An understatement... She looked up at the star-filled sky. No, I shall be long on the shelf by the time she makes her debut. What makes you so certain you're shelf-bound? She cast him a sidelong glance. While I appreciate your chivalry, my lord, your feigned ignorance insults us both. When he failed to reply, she stared down at her hands and replied, My choices are rather limited. How so? I seem able to have my pick of the impoverished, the aged and the deadly dull, she said, ticking off the categories on her fingers as she spoke. He chuckled. I find that difficult to believe. Oh, it's true. I'm not the type of young lady who brings gentlemen to heel. Anyone with eyes can see that. I have eyes, and I see no such thing. His voice lowered, soft and rich as velvet as he reached out to stroke her cheek. Her breath caught, and she wondered at the intense wave of awareness coursing through her. She leaned into his caress, unable to resist, as he moved his hand to grasp her chin. What is your name? he asked softly. She winced, knowing what was to come. Calpurnia. She closed her eyes again, embarrassed by the extravagant name, a name with which no one but a hopelessly romantic mother with an unhealthy obsession with Shakespeare, would have considered saddling a child. 
Calpurnia. He tested the name on his tongue. As in Caesar's wife. The blush flared higher as she nodded. He smiled. I must make it a point to better acquaint myself with your parents. That is a bold name to be sure. It's a horrible name. Nonsense. Calpurnia was Empress of Rome, strong and beautiful, and smarter than the men who surrounded her. She saw the future, stood strong in the face of her husband's assassination. She is a marvellous namesake. He shook her chin firmly as he spoke. She was speechless in the wake of his frank lecture. Before she had a chance to reply, he continued, Now I must take my leave, and you, Lady Calpurnia, must return to the ballroom head held high. Do you think you can do that? He gave her chin a final tap and stood, leaving her cold in the wake of his departure. She stood with him and nodded, starry-eyed. Yes, my lord. Good girl. He leaned closer and whispered, his breath fanning the hair at her nape, warming her in the cool April night. Remember, you are an empress. Behave as one and they will have no choice but to see you as such. I already do. He paused, and she held her breath waiting for his words. Your Highness. And with that he was off, disappearing deeper into the maze and leaving Callie with a silly grin on her face. She did not think twice before following him, so keen was she to be near him. At that moment she would have followed him anywhere, this prince among men who had noticed her, not her dowry or her horrible dress, but her. If I am an empress, he is the only man worthy of being my emperor. She did not have to go far to catch him. Several yards in, the maze opened on a clearing that featured a large gleaming fountain adorned with cherubs. There, bathed in a silvery glow, was her prince, all broad shoulders and long legs. Callie caught her breath at the sight of him. Exquisite, as though he himself had been carved from marble. And then she noticed the woman in his arms. Her mouth opened in a silent gasp, her hand flying to her lips as her eyes widened. In all her seventeen years, she'd never witnessed something so wonderfully scandalous. The moonlight cast his paramour in an ethereal light, her blonde hair turned white, her pale gown gossamer in the darkness. Callie stepped back into the shadows, peering around the corner of the hedge, half wishing she hadn't followed, entirely unable to turn away from their embrace. My, how they kissed. And deep in the pit of her stomach, youthful surprise was replaced with a slow burn of jealousy, for she had never in all her life wanted to be someone else so very much. For a moment, she allowed herself to imagine it was she in his arms, her long, delicate fingers threading through his dark, gleaming hair, her lithe body that his strong hands stroked and moulded, her lips he nibbled, her moans coursing through the night air at his caresses. As she watched his lips trail down the long column of the woman's throat, Callie ran her fingers down the same path on her own neck, unable to resist pretending that the feather-light touch was his. She stared as his hand stroked up his lover's smooth, contoured bodice and grasped the edge of the delicate gown, pulling it down, bearing one high, small breast to the night. His teeth flashed wickedly as he looked down at the perfect mound and spoke a single word. Gorgeous. Before luring his lips to its dark tip, pebbled by the cool air and his warm embrace. His paramour threw her head back in ecstasy, unable to control her pleasure in his arms, and Callie could not tear her eyes from the spectacle of them, brushing her hand across her own breast, feeling its tip harden beneath the silk of her gown, imagining it was his hand, his mouth upon her. Ralston. The name carried on a feminine moan, sliced through the clearing, shaking Callie from her reverie. In shock, she dropped her hand and whirled away from the scene upon which she had intruded. She rushed through the maze, desperate for escape, and stopped once more at the marble bench where her garden excursion had begun. Breathing heavily, she collected herself, shocked by her behaviour. 
Ladies did not eavesdrop, and they certainly did not eavesdrop in such a manner. Besides, fantasies would do her no good. She pushed aside a devastating pang of sorrow as the truth coursed through her. She would never have the magnificent Marquess of Ralston, nor anyone like him. She felt an acute certainty that the things he had said to her earlier were not truth, but instead the lies of an inveterate seducer, carefully chosen to appease her and send her blithely off, easing his dark tryst with his ravishing beauty. He hadn't believed a word of it. No, she was not Calpurnia, Empress of Rome. She was plain old Callie, and she always would be.